Hi, this is Zoe Durand and you are listening to the Inside Family Law podcast. I'm very lucky to have Amy Jenkins here with me speaking. Um, and Amy is a very experienced lawyer, but I'll let her tell, tell you more about her experience from her own words. So what is it that you do, Amy? And where do you work? Uh, I am a principal at Russell Kennedy Aitken Lawyers in Sydney, which is a firm that has just merged Russell Kennedy and Aitken Lawyers Congratulations. together. Thank you. Uh, I've been a family lawyer for over 10 years and I'm the head of the family law team both here and in Melbourne. Well, I mean, and that merger happened just recently, didn't it? I it saw did. It a bit. Yeah, yeah, it did. It happened at the start of this month. So we're very excited about the increased offering that we'll be able to have both here and in Melbourne in the family law space. Fantastic. And obviously, so that, that's happened recently, but the other thing that I really wanted to pick your brains about today, Amy, that's happened recently, we've all heard um, that the ALRC have released their report, um, obviously. We've all seen things popping up on our LinkedIn feeds and whatever, but I wanted to have a bit more of an in-depth chat with you about that today. Have you had a chance to look over the report at all? I have. It's a, a huge report of over <laughs> 500 pages, <laughs> uh, but I have... Uh, read it all and digested most of it. So I think it's a really interesting report and something we're going to have to continue to digest uh, in the months and years to come. So anything like off the top of your head that that stood out to you as what you thought was sort of some positive, positive, I mean obviously this is the devil's in the detail, but at least a seen positive recommendations? Uh, I think overall it's fantastic that there is a report and that there has been um, a panel um, looking into what needs to be done with the family law system in Australia. It's clearly not working, the system that we have. Uh, the court delays are astronomical and the flow-on effects from that is huge. So I think the biggest positive is the fact that we have something that we can work with and there are 60 recommendations here. As a family lawyer, I think there's some recommendations that I think are... Uh, have the potential to create greater certainty for um, participants in the system. I think there are some recommendations that I don't necessarily agree with or think mm. that will help. Sure. Um, but I think overall it's great that we've got one. Okay. So what are some of the recommendations that you do think are helpful and makes and sensible? Um, I think if we were to start from the um, property side of the equation in the family law system, um, there's a lot of recommendations in there that I can see attempt to simplify the process. Uh, two recommendations that spring to mind would be um, commencing the discussions about a property division from an equality of contribution unless there are exceptions to that. I think that that is um, a valiant effort uh, by the uh, panel to um, create simplicity. I think, as you said, Zoe, it really is devil in the detail of that recommendation mm. um, and how that is actually framed um, in the legislation. How is the presumption then rebutted? Da, 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 da. That's right, yes, because whenever you have a presumption, there are then normally a huge list of exceptions or rebuttals to that presumption that we then have to deal with which puts us back in a very similar position to what we're currently in. Um, but at least it may assist parties before they engage in the legal process to understand that that is the basic principle that underlies things, that there is equality. Yeah, I mean, look, I've heard another barrister saying it's a very root and branch kind of, a root and branch recommendations, trying to make the law more accessible. Um, and whilst I, you know, and I, 
completely agree with what you're saying about then you then have this list of all the ways in which it can be rebutted. Perhaps what it might do is assist people who are negotiating or, you know, they're not actually in the court process, so they're negotiating in the shadow of the law. The law is more clear. Mm. That might assist them, perhaps? I think that's right. And I think the other recommendation that does assist with that is the relevant date um, has been changed or it's recommended to be changed. So the current system is that uh, the relevant date to ascertain the value of assets is as at the date that parties resolve a matter or the date that a matter is um, determined. Mm. One of the recommendations is to change that so that the relevant date is the date of separation. Now whilst parties argue about what the date of separation is, I see everyday clients argue about inheritances received after the date of separation or contributions or wastage of money after the date of separation mm. and that seems to really increase and heighten disputes. So I think changing that date has a lot of advantages. Just draw the line in the sand then and that's when it is. That's exactly right. There, obviously there will be uh, some couples that that really disadvantages where there's been a, a lottery win or something quite significant happening after the date of separation uh, but I think it creates uh, less argument definitely. Okay and are there any in there that you sort of think are somewhat well, obviously very respectful to, uh, to the people that wrote the report but we, in your purely subjective opinion are a little bit problematic? Um, I think that the I mean one of the first recommendations is that the system goes back to a state-based system. Yeah I wanted to speak with you about that what are mm. your thoughts with that? I, I mean, there isn't a lot of uh, flesh in this about how that would work. How's that going to work logistically? What That's is that right. actually going to mean? You know? And it, it's almost um, a running joke amongst family lawyers that every couple of years there's a suggestion that the Family Court and the Federal Circuit Court are going to merge and that um, is suggested that it will happen and then for some reason it doesn't happen. So there is a part of me that thinks, although that recommendation is... Um, interesting and novel whether that will actually ever be achieved is a, a different thing so I think that um, in my opinion greater focus um, would be better spent on some of the other recommendations of streamlining the system rather mm. than trying to radically change everything about the system and return it to state-based uh, a state-based model in saying that, I can see the reason why they have suggested that. Mm, I, mean, mm. I have a number of cases where there is involvement from facts, yeah. um, where it, in order to get facts involved in a family law matter, you have to invite them. Mm. Um, facts then don't have, often, all of the information that they need. I have one matter where it's taken them more than three months to consider the material because it was sent to the wrong caseworker at facts and then thrown around the system. Um, and that really creates huge disadvantage for the child who, if facts are being invited to attend, there's generally, uh, or uh, invited to intervene, there's generally a really good reason why that's mm. been suggested. Um, so I can understand the basis for it, but I think, in my opinion, focus should be placed on some of the other recommendations, and once those have been bedded down and are working assi and assisting people, mm. then return back to that suggestion. Although it is recommendation one, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that, 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 I did say that. It was recommendation one. What do you think about um, with children's orders simplifying the, the factors to be considered when determining the living arrangements? So, for example, removing the mandatory consideration of, of particular living arrangements. Do you think that's a positive or not? Um, 
Look, I'm an independent children's lawyer and I deal with lots of matters where there are self-represented litigants and that's a really common thread in the family law system at the moment. Uh, we're going more and more towards um, self-represented litigants and I think removing that presumption um, is helpful because it gives greater emphasis to the things that the court will genuinely consider which are, at the moment anyway, contained within Section 60CC and those factors I think a lot of self-represented litigants and some solicitors uh, focus on that requirement to look at um, equal time that's contained within the order uh, within the legislation, and I don't think that's helpful. Okay. So, one thing as well that I've wanted to speak that you and I were speaking about earlier is, um, sorry, to return back to property. There is um, one of the recommendations is in relation to a presumption about equality of superannuation so that it would be, at least it, I, I presume it's a rebuttable presumption, um, that the superannuation assets accumulated during the relationship would be evenly split between the parties. Do you have thoughts about that one? Uh, I think that when I first read that I thought, well that's that simplifies things and that would be of benefit to parties, but when I started to think a bit more deeply about that recommendation, uh, I think it could generate greater um, avenues for conflict. Um, the recommendation is that all superannuation that's acquired during the relationship would be divided equally. Um, and I think that that and some of the other recommendations in this put greater focus on when the relationship commenced and when the relationship ended. Yeah. And I think that those um, two dates aren't always central considerations because in current family law matters because they don't matter. Um, because the relevant date for valuing assets, for instance, is as at the date of um, determination. Mm. And so I think that um, creates one greater avenue for dispute. And I think in, in addition to that, I think that it also takes away some of the bargaining power that parties have currently. For some uh, parties, their superannuation is a, an important asset for mm. them, particularly when they are nearing retirement and they want to retain more of that superannuation. Or for other parties, um, particularly men or women who have been out of the workforce who don't have a significant superannuation asset, it may be very important for them to acquire one, or alternatively, may be very important for them to have greater cash assets to mm. acquire accommodation for themselves. So I think having that presumption there could um, detract from parties being able to negotiate. Like the mix of assets. That's yeah. right during those conversations. And it'd be interesting, I guess, to see how this all plays out, like, you know, in... Because there's also what's happening in the court, but then there's, as I've said, we all negotiate in the shadow of the law mm -hmm. and then how that will affect settlement negotiations or mediation. Will this change where people come from? They'll now perhaps start to adopt eventually a standpoint that it should be... Superannuation should be divided 50-50, although it doesn't... I know it doesn't say that. It says the presumption. Mm. It'd just be interesting to see how this all unfolds in time. Mm. And I think that that presumption is sort of, it, it almost has parallels with the old change um, to specifically listing that the court has to consider an equal time arrangement. There's nothing in the legislation to say that that must occur. Mm. It's just a consideration, but many lawyers it took turns that. Into that. Yeah, that's, it turns that's into exactly the, right. It's, I find this really interesting. It's getting a little, little bit philosophical here, but I always say it's, it's not just what the law is. It's also what is the space around the law for misinterpretation. Mm. Um, and if that starts to kind of take on weight with, uh, with practitioners, with 
people who are going through the process, it becomes an entity in and of itself, even if it's not actually accurate. That's right. That's you right. Know, it becomes lived as true. Mm. And I could see very uh, clearly that practitioners, when they're negotiating, particularly if they don't work solely in family law, would come to the table and say, well, there has to be an equality of superannuation mm. and that's it. Uh, which is an oversimplification of the recommendation, but is potentially a, a byproduct. Yeah, no, I find that that really interesting because I do think I agree with what you say about the time arrangements and how that kind of became mm. it, it sort of merged into that in some mm. you know practitioners maybe who don't practice often in family law or definitely in some parents' minds. Mm. That's how what it became turned into. Mm. Mm. Um, what do you think about? I mean, look, this has been one of the controversial things I'm seeing on everyone's LinkedIn feeds and Facebook feeds. Um, the, the, the clearer consequences or sort of the possibly punitive in terms of cost orders consequences um, for lawyers who, who aren't supposedly efficient or whatever. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? I've seen a, a, an array of different views. Yeah, look, I'm not concerned about it, and I think that it, well, it wouldn't affect to you, happen. Amy. <laughs> it would not affect me, no, and it wouldn't affect uh, most lawyers either. I, this is, to me, it seems that the recommendation just brings the Family Law Act into line with other pieces of legislation, other, and other jurisdictions. jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it's entirely reasonable. I think that at the moment, and there's also a recommendation. Um, here about mediation and probably also, although it doesn't specifically say it, but also a change to the pre-action procedures that we currently have. So the pre-action procedures that we have at the moment make requirements of parties to exchange disclosure and offers and various other things before proceedings are commenced. Invariably, that doesn't happen. Um, and that is raised before the court and quite often um, there is perhaps a furrowed brow and some um, upset comments from the bench, but largely it's a toothless tiger. And mm. that is, I think, because the costs provisions that we have at the moment are ineffective for forcing compliance. So it means the directions that are made by the court are optional um, mm. and considered to be recommendations rather than actually mm. orders um, which then means that matters come back before the court less prepared, which creates frustration in the bench and Delays. means that things yeah. stagnate. And that's the last thing that this system needs. So anything that will actually make both practitioners and parties sit up and listen and do what they are required to do, I think, is a positive. And any good practitioner shouldn't be scared or concerned about mm. that. Mm. I mean, I guess the thing is that if you look at other jurisdictions, I mean, you and I were discussing this previously, like the Supreme Court has always had inherent jurisdiction over its practitioners, including the ability to make cost orders, mm. personal cost orders. Mm. But that was only ever done in really, it's only ever occurred in really extreme situations. Mm. I think perhaps for some family lawyers, and I understand where they're coming from, like, but if, if you haven't practised in other jurisdictions, that might seem very frightening to them, mm. with the possibility of a personal cost order. Um, because they haven't seen how it's when it's used and how sparingly it's used in other jurisdictions, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. And that's I, I agree with you entirely. If you've not been exposed to it, the possibility of being forced to pay the other party's costs personally is terrifying. Um, but we're all officers of the court, and this is really just an extension of that. So um, I provided, again, devil is always in the detail, provided the legislation doesn't go too far. I don't think mm. any if should if be If it's concerned. done in a way that's similar to other jurisdictions, which that's is so, only in yeah. extreme cases where it's very obvious of mm. abhorrent behaviour, mm. it should be okay. Yeah. 
So do you have any other thoughts about any of the other reforms that you'd like to raise, like arbitration? I think we were talking about that before. Yeah, arbitration in parenting matters. Uh, I think arbitration at the moment is something that is used, but I think used sparingly in most cases. Um, and I think there have been quite mixed reviews on success rates and things like that. I think extending arbitration to include parenting matters has the potential for some great and quick results in certain matters, but yeah, in certain matters, yeah. I think there is a, a huge amount of very complex parenting disputes in our court system, and I think those disputes are, of course, made worse and more complex because of the time delays, but mm. not always so. And the risk of having um, arbitration in parenting matters, and in fact in all matters really, is the possibility that um, family violence won't be given the same um, breadth of attention that it deserves and mm. parties will potentially be put in an even more vulnerable position than they otherwise would have um, because of that arbitration process. So I'm sort of um, reserved in terms of whether I would be a supporter of that recommendation depending on what they do with it. But do you think in the right matter, I mean, arbitration is, is not meant to be compulsory, it's not compulsory, no. so no. if it's voluntary, yeah. in the right matter, maybe a more, more straightforward parenting matter, mm. you know, mm. where it's talking about does one parent get five nights or seven nights, or, you know, something mm. that's not, do you think that could be suitable for arbitration? Yeah, provided that the right um, practitioners, and I'm not just talking about lawyers, but the other... Um, specialists that the courts utilise in parenting matters sure. are still used in the arbitration process mm. um, because I think that that's an important part of the system that we have and I think that would need to be maintained. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And you've got, I mean, from your experience as, a, as an independent children's lawyer in the matters you've seen, and I know you and I have talked about this, you do have like, um, you know, an interest in, I guess, family violence and how um, delays impact that. Is that right? Definitely, yeah. definitely. And I see it in parenting matters and also in uh, property matters. I, I ran a, a parenting matter recently where the parties had been in the court system for three and a half years and um, their eldest child was about to start high school and the parties disagreed about where they would live. It was a relocation matter. And the court couldn't allocate, didn't have the resources to allocate a final hearing or an interim hearing to determine that issue. Mm. So one of the parties simply made a decision and enrolled the child in school. And because that had happened, that then meant that a lot of the other issues fell away because the child was already in school then and the possibility of then having to rip mm. that child out of school and um, back to a different area um, was just clearly not in her interests. That is a really unfair way to make a decision in a matter, both for the children um, who incidentally didn't want to go to that school that they were ultimately enrolled in, um, whether their views would have been given weight is a different thing. But um, I think that that is, that that is just one example of how delays impact things. There, there are countless other matters where I have clients who have been exposed to very, very significant family violence and one particular matter, a client is, um, there is clear documented evidence and the partner was in fact jailed for domestic violence and when he 
um, was released from jail, he then filed a 79A application to set aside some previous orders that the parties had, which on our case is just an extension of the violence and abuse. And yeah, it's interesting. My client has been waiting for close to four years for a final hearing in that matter. And for her, that is just a continual reminder of the abuse that it's she control, suffered. It's coercive control. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's not an isolated example. I think that the recommendations, I mean, there's one recommendation that um, suggests that access to interim spouse maintenance should be given to registrars to make a decision on. I think that's a really interesting recommendation and um, I think has the potential of being um, very successful, although we're only... Um, it's only as successful as the judicial officer who's making a decision. Mm. Um, mm. But I think that that is one step forward in terms of reducing delays for matters where parties really are genuinely in need and at the moment are waiting three, four, five, six months mm. for an interim determination to get them some money. What about, I mean, you know, you were talking, and it was a really interesting example that you used about how the process in itself then can become kind of another iteration of that control, mm. coercive control. Mm. But what do we do in that? Like, what, how can that be changed? I mean, it's, you know, people need to have the right, I guess, the right, I guess to be able to file, you know, or mm. press proceedings. Mm. How do you balance that with mm. what a victim might have been through with you know, suffer domestic violence. Mm. I, I totally agree. Parties have to be given the right to file an application. I think that um, some of the recommendations go towards assisting in that. The requirement um, to participate, maybe not in um, mediation, but at least a, re a requirement that is an enforceable requirement to consider um, whether the the prospects of success, I suppose, mm. um, prior to filing, I think is useful. I think having matters resolved quicker mm. um, and also having potential costs, consequences, because at the moment parties can file an application and if it's not successful, well, that's quite sad, yeah. but there is no yeah, cost yeah, consequence, yeah. so it doesn't matter. There's less, um, you know, less effect on them in the long term. Which is different to what you see again in the Supreme Court. Absolutely, so. absolutely. So do you think perhaps this will make people think, wake up a bit more and think about what they're actually doing and what the veracity of what they're doing? Like, like do they have real prospects? Actually mm. think about that. You mm. know? <laughs> yeah, and I think it will also make solicitors think about that. I mean, we're in a jurisdiction where we don't have to think about prospects as often in mm. most matters because if, if these parties are the parents of children, then they... You know, have a right to make an application. If these parties were married or in a de facto relationship, then they have a right to make an application. So we don't think about prospects because mm. um, no one ever wins in family law matters. It's just taking a hole and dividing it in property matters. Um, but it's a practice that we should participate in mm. prior to filing, definitely. And hopefully some of these recommendations will force us to do that. Mm. Now, that's true. I mean... I have heard a lot of people say, oh, look, this this is just going to mean I'm going to sack clients more, da da da, da. Mm. But maybe all it means is that, as you say, people just need to turn their minds and be more mindful mm. to thinking about, you know, the prospects they have in, in this matter or, um, you know, really firming up the reality testing and the advice they're giving to clients as well mm. about whether or not they should proceed with certain applications. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that there is also a... a seemingly anyway from the recommendations an attempt to bring in 
some of the other jurisdictions more fully within the family law space. I mean, there mm. is a, a recommendation to include the statutory tort of family violence in the Family Law Act, which I think is really interesting. And That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, and it's an argument that has been run a number of times in the family court system, but a lot of family lawyers would have no idea what that even means. They go, I've got to remember back to university. That's exactly right. Taught what? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's exactly right. So, but I think, me personally, I think that that's a good thing. I think that the family law system at the moment is very insular, and so having those recommendations in there, hopefully when family lawyers read this, they will think to themselves, well, maybe maybe I need to read a bit more broadly. I mean, I think that there is um, inherent jurisdiction in the family court that you can run that tortious argument mm. in that in the court system anyway. Mm. Um, but I think bringing it into the family more court... More explicitly. Right, yeah. It, yeah, it makes it very clear. Well, that is really yeah. interesting, Amy. Mm. Um, what do you think about... There was um, a recommendation, I think, for compulsory... Well, requirement for compulsory mediation... I mean, we have that already in parenting matters, but in property matters as well. Did you have any thoughts about that? Um, I think uh, that was probably one of the most predictable recommendations Mm. that was going to be made. I think most family lawyers thought it was coming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that um, generally it's a good thing, and I think most family lawyers would do that anyway. I would assume that there would also be the same sort of exceptions of urgency, Mm. Um, and I wonder whether... Um, property extends to spousal maintenance applications um, because some of those spousal maintenance applications are so urgent that mediation may not even be a possibility. Um, I think that there is always a risk with requiring mediation for one party to be more vulnerable. Um, And I know you've said before, Zoe, and accurately so, that in parenting matters, the parties know their children. So even if they know nothing else, they can have a mediation about what's best for their children because they know them generally. Sometimes they don't, I suppose. We we think most of the time. time. (laughs) Um, But in property matters, that's not always the case. I mean, very often we have clients who come in and sit down and tearfully tell us that they've separated and they've been married for 30 years. and never managed to find it. They don't even know what's there. Yeah. You ask them, what, what is the pool of assets? What do you have? And they look at you blankly and say, I don't know. And that's very common, not only with older couples, but also with younger couples too. It's not uncommon for one party to work and the other party to be focused on raising children and not needing to know the financial detail. So there would need to be some protective measures in place to make sure that that, I'll call them the vulnerable party in that circumstance, have access to the information and also have access to um, the resources of a good quality family law solicitor that can help them through it. And I wonder whether there will be place in the legislation for parties to make an application for costs for the Mm -hmm. payment of their legal fees to facilitate them attending mediation prior to the actual substantive proceedings beginning. Like if you had one party where there was a huge disparity in Mm. income and often there is and then they can't afford the mediation but they're required to go, so how does that work? That's right, it's a circular argument. You have mm. to go to mediation in order to go to court, but you have to go to court to get money to pay your fees mm. for a lawyer to go to mediation. It's quite It's circular. all these details that really need to be ironed out, yeah. you know, and we'll just have to see how things play out. Yeah, and here. I mean, there's 500 pages of <laughs> report here, so 
bedtime reading for the next couple of months. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> um, so there is a lot of information here, but I think that when our legislators are going through and drafting um, the actual laws that are going to surround these recommendations, I think that these are things that need to be considered. Um, as you say, you deal with the coalface of what actually happens in family law. And yes, on the face of it, recommending that parties or requiring parties to attend mediation um, prior to commencing a property dispute is a fantastic idea. And I think often, in most of the time, it would be, you know, good. But Absolutely. there are some problems, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any, I guess, outside of these recommendations, if this was like Amy's, Amy's um, I don't know, running the world... Amy's wish list list for family law do you have any other thoughts it could be something that's in there as well things that you've thought for a while just those things that you notice when you work at the coalface you're like oh this is this could be done better I mean obviously besides more funding less delays Mm. the obvious things Mm. is there anything else that strikes you Um, I think that there would be some utility in having a bit of uniformity in how matters are dealt with in the case management process Mm. I think that there is great difference in terms of what clients would expect before different uh, judges, how long matters will take Mm -hmm. um, and how long it will take matters to reach a hearing. I think that all judges are under extreme amounts of pressure, there's no denying that um, and I don't know how they do it to be honest. But I think it would be useful for parties and also for solicitors to understand that all matters will be dealt with in a similar way. Mm, more matters, consistency. That's right. Yeah. Matters that are judge managed in the Federal Circuit Court currently are dealt with very differently by different officers. Yes. I there are that. some officers who, um, some judges who always require a balance sheet um, prior to even a directions hearing taking place about um, a conciliation conference in a property matter. There are other judicial officers who require that balance sheet to be prepared after the matter has been listed for conciliation conference. This sounds like a really small and insignificant um, difference, but to parties and to lawyers when you're preparing to go to court, it, it makes a big difference Sure. to how things are prepared. And that's just one example. All, all lists yeah. are run differently. And of course, you know, when you've been doing it for 10 years, you get to know the judges and yeah. how they like to operate. But what if you're a new practitioner in the area? Yeah, or a self-represented litigant. Oh, yeah, or a self-represented mm. litigant, exactly. And mm. you've heard from your friend that this is what happens and you get there and it's not actually it's like that. It's totally different. <laughs> That's right. And I think, you know, we've all been there on mention days where you attend for a mention at 9.30 and you actually get on for your 10-minute mention at half past three in the afternoon. Yep. Sometimes and you've got to explain that to clients. What do you do right. with that? Do you charge for that? Do you not? That's what do right. You, do? you know, and sometimes you use that time to negotiate and you resolve the matter. That does sometimes happen, um, but more often than not, it doesn't, and it's wasted time. And I think that if if we're going to have these huge matter lists, it would be far better for um, attendances to be staggered, like they do in the Supreme Court and yeah. other places, where you're given a not Good before point. time, mm. um, where you don't have to attend before. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, whatever the time is, mm. so that it's a more realistic... This group will be heard at this time, this group, and it's much more... That's right. Yeah, much more clear when you're yeah. actually going to be heard. Yeah. Much better for these poor parties who are going through their separation, pretty traumatic time, mm. and then to not have to wait around till 3pm or you know, just to know 
with more certainty when they're going to be heard. That's right. And especially in circumstances where they come before the court at three o'clock and then they're told we're very, very busy and we don't have time to deal with you and you'll have to come back another day. Mm. And this is not a criticism. That's right. It's not a criticism of the judicial officer. They are a a cog in this huge machine that is broken. Um, But But that's a change that could be made to the way things are run. Yeah. And I would have thought fairly simply, you know, that's not an increase in resources necessarily that would make that change. I think the other thing probably is um, what we do at the moment with self-represented litigants. I think it's a huge problem um, Mm. that we have. All parties have the um, option to represent themselves. Um, But self-represented litigants do absolutely increase the strain on resources, um, the time that matters take, and usually... The fees for the other person who has a lawyer. Absolutely. I'd say by often about a third. Yep. There yeah. Give or take. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because the party who is represented often is sitting in court and having the judge tell the other party, I will give you some leniency because you are self-represented. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that our judges are very good in terms of providing assistance without providing legal advice or anything yeah. like that, but it's still an unfortunate situation that we're in and we have matters where we have one party who has been the victim of domestic violence so therefore has to have a lawyer because they feel as though they cannot um, run their case without Manage one. With, the, yeah, with this self-represented person. Yeah. That's right. Or that they're sensible enough to acknowledge that their case will run more smoothly if they do get an expert. And then we have the other party who self-represents in circumstances where they earn hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and could end, could pay their legal fees easily but decide mm. not to, either because they want to increase violence um, and perpetrate that or because they're perhaps arrogant enough to think that they can run it on their own. Do you think then there should be some... I mean, look, this is totally different and I'm not trying to oversimplify things at all, mm. but, you know, for example, like if you don't get private health insurance at a certain point with your income, there's t- tax consequences for mm. that, you know. Do you think that it should be that if someone has a certain income, they should be required perhaps to pay for a solicitor or something? I mean, no, it's really complicated and how would you, and would it be a sliding scale and would it be a cutoff here? I don't even know how you mm. would do that. Mm. But do you think that we need to move away from this, I guess, concept that people have the right to automatically to self-represent if they have, you know, the financial means to pay for a solicitor mm. or not? Well, you're not sure. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to give me an answer, Amy. I yeah. It, look, this is a really difficult one. I, I think that um, this could potentially be worked into the costs um, recommendation. I think that where one party is legally represented at an interim hearing, for instance, and the other party is not, I think that there should be greater um, consideration to whether part of those costs are passed on to the other parties. Um, I think that where a party files an interim application that is completely futile and the other party, which does happen, Mm. and the other party is forced to respond or attend court, I think that the cost consequences of that should be spelled out in the Act to make it very clear to self-represented litigants that this is the consequence of you representing yourself. Now, some people don't have the choice. Some people have to represent yeah, they themselves. Can't, they're not eligible for... Le- they fall in that gap, and I feel really sorry for these people. They fall in that gap where they're not ineligible for legal aid, but they can't really properly afford to pay That's for a right. solicitor. Yeah. Which is actually where a lot of people's incomes hit, you know. Yeah. Like, a lot of Australians' incomes would hit in that bracket. Absolutely. So what do they do? You know? yeah. What can they do? 
I mean, the you know, I think the average um, income, I think it's um, around the $70,000 mark. You know, You're not going to get much legal fees no. after you pay for your rent, mortgage, kids, kids, food. There's really not... I don't know if you could have a lawyer to do much more than draft the initial documents. That's right. So that also has to be tempered in any of these provisions. But I... I think that the greatest strain on our system is not those self-represented litigants. I think the greatest strain on our system is the people who choose to be self-represented when they do not have to. Um, and that's really something that I think could and should be focused on. Because mm. if you sit in a busy duty list in the Federal Circuit Court in Sydney, um, there are a great number of matters where there are self-represented litigants. Who own what, hundreds of thousands of dollars? Yes. So why are they self-representing, do you think? Is it just they don't want to pay the money for legal fees or, or they don't they want access to the client, to the party or what do you think it is? Or? Um, probably a combination of all of these things. I think some of them think that they can do it better than any lawyer could. I think some want access to the person who they have perpetrated violence against. Uh, I think some are greedy and that's probably why the dispute arose in the first place because they don't want to divide their assets with their spouse and don't want to have to pay legal fees. Mm. And I think for a lot of these people, they are, they're intelligent people. They, they can read the Act and they can certainly read the cost provisions in our Act which say each party pays their own and they, that's the words that they rely on. I've had many self-represented litigants say to me, go on, make a cost application, you won't be successful, I've read the Act. Little do they know that there are many cases where costs are ordered, but they don't get mm. that. Mm. So, so do you think that that's an important thing that, to change, mm. to, to make there be some more real cost consequences? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that that would definitely relieve some of the strain on our judicial officers. And perhaps they'd get yelled at less, because quite often self-represented litigants are screaming at our judicial officers, which is not only inappropriate, but very, very unhelpful. They already have a hard enough job. <laughs> Those are really interesting um, thoughts, Amy. Do you have any other ideas for if we could wave a magic wand over the family law <laughs> system? Well, look, so you're talking about reform. Greater resources, I think, is obvious, the, yeah. the very obvious comment. Um, I think that the other thing, in, from a resource point of view, is greater training for our family lawyers. I think that there are a lot of family lawyers out there absolutely no criticism to them but do not have the training or expertise you don't have a clue yeah no, that's what she's saying no. <laughs> that's exactly right you don't have a clue no, you shouldn't be practicing i i don't know anything about um, taxation law except as it's relevant in family law and that means that i don't give people um, advice about their taxes I send them off to an accountant or a, or a specialist in the tax space. And I think that the same goes for family law. I think the people that dabble in family law um, hurt our system and also Double, our reputation. dibble, dribble. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. So I think if there were greater resources um, in educating our practitioners, I think that that would be a really useful um, thing. And I think that there's no harm in requiring practitioners who work in a court to have some knowledge of the area that they are working in. We require it of our independent children's lawyers, yep. so why sure. shouldn't we require it of our other practitioners? And what's the, sorry to sort of loop back around to something a little bit different, but back to the start, what's what's on the horizon that you can talk about publicly anyway, that's not a secret strategy for um, where you're at, you know, with your, with your firm and, you know, where you're, what you're wanting to do going forward? 
Uh, look, Back I to you, Amy the person. <laughs> yeah. Amy the person. Uh, look, I think that um, it's a really exciting time for the firm and where we now have offices in Sydney and Melbourne, which is fantastic. And I think that the merging of the firm and these recommendations coming out at, at the same or similar times, I think, is really um, helpful for us. And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to take the family law practice into a much more... Um, you know, conciliatory um, direction, which is where I want to head and where all good family lawyers mm. practice on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm hoping that that will extend not only to Sydney, but also our Melbourne practice. And you're head now of the whole nation nationally, so fa so Melbourne and Sydney. That's you're right. Yes, yeah. So like I say, I'll stay on your UN. You're like a rock star family, <laughs> rock starring it out there. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for chatting with me today. So this has been Amy Jenkins, who is the National Head of Family Law at Russell Kennedy Aiken, newly merged. Um, and this is Zoe Duran, your interviewer, who uh, this is my Inside Family Law podcast, following on from the Inside Family Law book. So please keep listening. Thank you.